Welcome to Between the Years, the podcast that believes it's all in your head. This is episode seven. You're about to hear an unscripted conversation about the Boston Basics, a philosophy for raising children early in their life. What do babies really need early in life? How do we explain the achievement gap that exists for kids of different races and socioeconomic statuses? Are the Boston Basics valuable or just well-intended but low-impact generalities? These are difficult questions. In each podcast, our goal is to develop some potential answers by the end for our listeners. I'm Stack, and here is the start of our show. Today's format is unique as we have a special guest that has taken over Z Stuff's position in the studio today to discuss the Boston Basics. Hi, Mom. Hi, Ken. So my mother is here, and my mom is here because I don't know what happened between zero and three. I don't have, like most of us, really any memories of that age. And if they are, they're fleeting at best. So we're going to go through the Boston basics with my mom, who can describe what she remembers on how we did as a pair uh, during my childhood and whether we kind of agree with it, uh, particularly my mom, since she was the parent. I was just the little baby who can't remember anything. So the Boston basics, um, you can find information on the Boston basics at thebasics.org. Um, an economist, Ronald Ferguson, seems to have devoted most of his professional career to study the learning gap uh, that exists between kids of different races and socioeconomic statuses. And basically, um, he, he was the director, or I believe he still is the director of the Achievement Gap Initiative at Harvard University. And he learning begins uh, the moment the child is born, and in particularly the first three years. 80% uh, of the brain growth happens in the first three years of life, and kids have been found to be at a disadvantage as early as two years of age uh, in the research that's out there. Um, if some of these basics, um, as they refer to them, are not done. So he's got, uh, through the, uh, the Achievement Gap Initiative at Harvard, five basic principles that they feel are easy to do and they want everyone to know for parents to give their child the best start in life. Uh, and they've partnered up with a lot of nonprofits and other interested uh, kind of public groups and the mayor's office out in Boston to start to really publicize this. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if it goes nationwide or continues to get different press. So number one of these five principles is to maximize love and to manage stress. So without giving any details, mom, how do you think we did early in my life for managing stress and uh, the stress I was exposed to as a baby and maximizing love? Well, I think the stresses actually can point to stress on both sides. A new parent has stress. Am I doing the right thing? What should I be doing? And then the child has been born, taken out of this nice warm cocoon, exposed to this new environment. And researchers show that, you know, there is a certain amount of physical stress that certainly comes on. And then at learning and, and relationship building. I think one of the things um, that I remember doing for you is that I always talk to you when you were in my womb. So, uh, and hearing I, is like almost instantaneous for the baby. It comes a, a lot earlier, like four weeks before vision. So that makes sense. Right. And playing music. Mm -hmm. So certain kinds of music. Um, and I've always loved music. Music has always been a part of my life. I don't know right. if it's from these years or not. And classical music in particular has been shown for people to lower blood pressure levels and stress. So I know that I would not 
play necessarily more raucous music. It was soothing or even singing um, nursery rhymes and, and that sort of thing. So that happened even before you were born. Can you ever remember a time where when I was a baby that I perceived stress coming from yourself or from my dad or from someone else? Because I I have a dog, as you know, and our dog, his eyes turn red if, if my wife and I argue or have a different tone in our voices. He can actually perceive stress. Do you ever remember me perceiving stress in any way that surprised you? Well, for example, sometimes loud noises stress babies, and I remember mm. that. Um, vacuuming, and oh, yeah. you would jump you know, you'd look, you might even cry or, or be scared. And you're right, loud noises, raised voices, I think are, are stressors. Uh, getting plunged into a bath uh, oh, yeah, uh, sometimes yeah. would cause some crying or a look of fear. I can remember that. Yeah. <laughs> yes, they're all, all these memories are coming back to me. This could be my hardest podcast today. I, I guess from what I've heard this one element of the Boston basics is kind of the one that parents gravitate towards because it's the classic, the baby's crying. Do you let them cry it out or do you go grab them? Do you go comfort them? And this is basically saying that it's impossible to overlove or be too affectionate with young children. So parents respond to that. They don't want to naturally let their baby cry it out or anything. Uh, do you feel like you always grabbed me when I cried or you let me cry it out about whatever I was crying about? That's a really good question. And the advice that I received from our pediatrician was opposite of what the Boston Basics says. Yeah. And that is that, first of all, when a child, and this is what we did, this is the formula we followed. Uh, if you're crying, we make sure that your diaper <laughs> was still dry, uh, that there was nothing in the room or in the area that was disturbing you in any way, or if it wasn't you know, make sure, oh gosh, it's five minutes to feeding time or like something like that. Like the obvious could, things that you could meet a need. And yeah. you'd comfort at that point. But if all the obvious things were fine, then the idea would be to close the door and let, this is the recommendation, and let the child cry. I will say yeah. that nine times out of 10, in just a couple of minutes or a few minutes, you would be asleep and it would be over. But as a new parent, I absolutely would say your instinct would be to pick up the baby and cuddle and and all of that. So, um, so I have some mixed emotions there. I think that there should be kind of that initial cuddling, but if everything is okay, sometimes you need to do that because a child will learn very quickly, at least I think in thinking back um, how quickly children you and your sister both reacted to stimulus. And if you know by crying that you're going to get picked up or you're going to get uh, a bottle put in your mouth or something like that, it would make sense to then use crying. That's where I'm at with some of this. It seems like a lot of it's just instinctual that any parent would do. Like they emphasize always smiling to the baby, kind words, using touch. I think just based on instinct, the way we're wired, that most parents would do this sort of thing. Uh, you know, I don't know. That's an assumption that um, certainly in my work um, that I've come to see that there that that may be true for some parents. But again, just like you and I are talking about you growing up and, and what was that experience in your early years, I think for parents, you're very much influenced by how you were raised. 
what if you were not a wanted child or um, were born into a a situation where abuse may have been very common? Uh, There just might not have been that same sort of thing. We hear parents described sometimes as cold, that there are parents that are cold that aren't naturally affectionate. So I think sometimes we sit in our homes or in you know, from our perspectives and think, well, everyone should have these skills. This is a no brainer. And I feel like because I was raised as a child in a very loving environment, I kind of assume that that's just a natural for parents and children. And we know that that's not true. Yeah, I think it's our own, our own bias. I'm, I'm thinking a lot about the, the different races. If you're dealing with racism day in and day out, or you're working two jobs to make it uh, make ends meet, you may not have that smile or that kind touch at the end of the day because you're exhausted. So it's just an effect of it. These might be nice reminders to the parent, but I, I think some of the parenting for some people is just going to be a product of what their life is like. And they may not have the energy or ability to to provide for the child what may come natural to both you and I, at least our thoughts so far. Or, you know, it is true that something like this, and in um, our local community, we have uh, an early childhood alliance that is using uh, an initiative called Talking is Teaching. And it focuses on zero to five years of age in particular. But again, um, these are all nice reminders, these tips. Um, and I think that's great to have those reminders and that reinforcement that, gee, a smile, a hug, reading to your children, talking constantly to to your children, singing to your children, all very good. Um, But I think your point's well taken. When you're stressed out, you may not think of those things. Or I guess even a bigger issue is that because we have research now, scientific research, maybe a lot of people don't know just how critical doing those things are because they seem so basic. What difference is that really going to make? Somebody might say, and we know now that it appears these very basic things are very, very important. And the world's changing with how we communicate. I, I know I've driven on the road and seen people entertaining their children with DVD players in the back seat and putting kids in front of a screen at an early age, and those just weren't options before. Uh, let's move on to principle two. You mentioned talking. So the second principle is to talk, sing, and point with your child. It helps babies to associate words with objects, according to the Boston Basics. Uh, children, uh, young babies, even infants zero through 12, respond to sounds and eventually uh, words and connect with eye contact and use a loving tone of voice and pointing in particular as an emphasis uh, to guide the child about what you're talking about. So did you did you do a lot of pointing? Was I an early pointer? We were huge readers. So lots and lots of books as you grew older, li- going to the library and picking out books was always a big thing. So what that really refers to is interactive reading so that both the child and the parent are engaged and that the pointing helps with that sort of thing. It's less important to read every word um, and more important to stimulate maybe some creativity. You were a very, um, I, I don't know if it's right brain, left brain, but you were definitely a creative child, like to draw things like that. So sometimes we would just make up stories from the pictures in the book and not necessarily follow all the words in the book. And I think that that's 
that's really what this is pointing to is that kind of interactive reading and the achievement gap is all about the really um, the effect of the number of words children use and learn. And if by age three, or even they're saying now as early as age two, and certainly by the time they start kindergarten, if there is a big gap, it is a very hard gap, vocabulary gap to overcome. But for you and I, we were reading, talking, um, all the time. And again, I think that might come back to my own background. I did things like crawl into the cupboard, kitchen cupboard, uh, to get to pots and pans and wooden spoons. No surprise then that I like to bake and to cook. But well, that, my mother would talk about it. That's know, what's been me. in my mind. And that's that's a connection I've been thinking about. I consider myself a pretty creative person. I haven't always acted on my creativity, but I have a long line of creative projects. This podcast is probably one of them too. So was I born inherently with that creativity or as parents, did you bring that out of me? Did it lead me in that direction? Was it nature versus nurture, that I, kind of quality? Yeah, I don't know. I just know that um, providing a variety of experiences and also keying off you, what seemed to make you laugh or get you excited. It might be the pictures in a book or whatever. But again, the important thing was the interaction and talking about it and asking questions, as they said, about the sounds, you know, what does the sound be, you know? Were you a singer before I was born? Because I, I was your firstborn. I don't consider myself a singer, but I already know I'll do goofy little singy songs uh, with my children. But were you a singer before? Or did it make you more of a singer or less self-conscious or more likely to? I was a singer before you were born. I was in chorus at school and loved to sing, play the piano uh, for my own just pure enjoyment, not necessarily to perform uh, in front of other people. But I had a couple solos in the school chorus. And uh, did you feel like your baby was demanding for you to sing at some point that it seemed like it called upon singing? It just seemed like a natural thing. Um, and again, I think keying off like you would smile or singing if you were seemed restless or unsettled or, you know, hard to go to sleep, perhaps singing seemed to relax. So that just became a pattern, you know, just something in my toolkit as a parent. So it seems like we've we've nailed number two, talking, singing and pointing. We, we were strong in this uh, yes. naturally. So moving on to the third principle from the Boston Basics, it's counting group and compare. And this was kind of weird for me when I read it. They're saying that babies love numbers and counting. There's some research that shows babies are born with an inherent math ability or an interest in math. And this is basically math for babies. Uh, and they're talking about using shapes, comparisons, saying this person's bigger, smaller, someone's taller, um, shorter, and also patterns. This is, I don't know, it's kind of weird to me, uh, all the comparisons and it almost implies judgment, but I guess it's in a mathematical type of frame and the world is kind of mathematical when you really study nature. So what do you think about this one, the counting, grouping and comparing? Well, you had a, a round toy that had cutouts in it, like star shape, diamonds, whatever. And those, they looked like cookie cutters almost. And so playing with that and matching the right, if you put the the uh, star shape in the star shape cutout of the ball, the star shape would go in 
the the cookie cutter thing. I remember my grandmother had that. Your mother had that too. And I I loved that for quite a while. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So I think Fisher Price did a lot of toys. That's what I remember. I can remember the the toy that had rings and they were different size rings. And you had to stack the rings correctly in order to fill up the pole. So you'd have these multicolor rings and, you know, you had to get them stacked appropriately by size. That's a pattern. So I think we thought less about, gee, are we teaching math? And just looking for things that were toys that stimulated you, that you had fun and, with. And then the, the child may gravitate towards those toys. Right. And yeah. then you would go and buy something more that might be similar to that. But it's not like... Um, you know, I had this, oh, I'm going to teach math. I don't have any recollection of that. But there was a lot about shapes, patterns. I think the world is inherently more mathematical than people give credit for. I appreciated it more when I DJed and everything was beats per minute. If you had a crowd of people and you were playing music that was going well to certain beats per minute, Mm -hmm. you can't play a great song that suddenly drops 20 beats per minute. It will kill the energy. Whereas if you take it up five or 10 beats per minute, it'll change the energy of the room. So there there probably is something to all this math in life. Well, think of the nursery rhymes. And I'm not sure that parents today pay as much attention to nursery rhymes. I know when uh, I go to a baby shower or whatever, I tend to look for nursery rhyme books to buy because I think the rhythm um, one, two, buckle my shoe. You know, that's mm-hmm. counting. There's counting in there. Yeah, and, that and the rhyme. Aspect. That's yeah. right. And I think, and it's fun. See, and that's what I think is really important is I think a lot of the things that we did um, with you growing up were fun too. They yeah. had, they had good roots. And that's why we depended on perhaps certain companies like Fisher Price was very much a trusted kids toy company. And I know did say in, in some of their promotion talk about the educational nature. Well, an early socially responsible company in some ways. <laughs> I'm sure there's scandals with plastic or something. Um, all right. So there's one when a child is a toddler, the Boston Basics says between 12 and 36 months. Uh, let's go to your love of cooking, particularly baking. It says to measure while you're cooking. Uh, so integrate your toddler into the, the baking. Uh, have them count and measure ingredients. Did you, is that even feasible or just a mess with a child that age? Did you do that with us? Because you already love baking. I did it with you. I'm not sure I agree at that age that that's what we did. Um, but I think by three years old, you were stirring, you were watching me um, crack an egg. You sometimes would crack an egg into a separate bowl so we could fish out the uh, broken eggshell pieces. Oh, still a challenge at it's, times. Still a right. Challenge. It's not necessarily easy. Um, trying to, you know, teaspoons, mixing, like I might have you fill the one cup of flour and you know, and then you dump it into the mixing bowl. Um, so I think by age three, you were doing that sort of thing. But I, and it, it might have been somewhere between two and three, but I sure don't think it's much between zero and two. That so we usually did. around this point in the podcast, I say listeners want to share what's going on between your ears, tweet us at between underscore cast and back to our conversation. But today I want to challenge our listeners to have this conversation with your own mother. 
you may learn a few things. You may find it interesting. You may get into a whole different type of discussion. Uh, so we've gone through the first three principles of the Boston Basics now, and I feel like we're doing pretty good. That you know, I I, I did all right at this age. This is kind of awesome. Uh, number four is exploring through movement and play. Uh, parents, and not just parents, but anyone that comes in contact with a baby, uh, try to enable and encourage the child to be in play situations, create that environment, and to encourage curiosity and experimentation, which to me is kind of the secret sauce of life, to always be curious, but babies inherently, they say, are, are naturally experimental and uh, enjoy their discoveries. So sure. how do you think I did with uh, time to play and you know, uh, able to explore life and the world out of the womb through movement. Well, I, th I can remember very early on, and I think most parents and even people who aren't parents but end up holding a, an infant, for example, how the child loves to reach out and touch the glasses on my face. He used to like to grab those oh, yeah. or hair or nose. And those were children teachable. really like faces. Yes, right? they really do. But that's, you know, because your face is up close. Yeah. Um, I think all of that. But that, how many times I say nose? mouth, you know, eyes, even using that as teachable moments. Um, again, some of the things with toys, or if I was cooking or baking, sitting you on the kitchen floor with your own uh, mixing bowl and a wooden spoon or plastic thing, spoons and, and such, and you'd be baking, you know, stirring all those kinds of things right along plastic containers, liking to make noise. All of a sudden you'd, you know, turn a cool up container into a drum. Um, those sorts of things did happen. One of the things that I find, and this is going to be my bias, is that sometimes I don't think parents today leave kids alone enough. Mm -hmm. I don't mean alone in the house, but to give them some space for that exploration. We don't, I never believed in that we needed to manage every moment of your waking time, that it was okay for you to like have time that you're crawling around and I might be dusting, you know, or cleaning the bathroom sink and you're, you're doing your own exploring. And, and I think that's important. As I, as I got older, it's only like what a quarter mile walk to the elementary school that was by our house. And I don't know if I felt a sense of pride, but there's certainly a sense of independence at a certain age. I could walk to the elementary school without my mother and I mm -hmm. could walk with my sister. Now I feel like somebody, and there are stories like this, that somebody would call the cops on you if we were allowed to walk on our own. The world has changed in some ways, yes. this fearful anxiety world. Uh, and I'm not sure if that's really a healthy way to go. I, I tend to think exactly like you just said. Well, I hear people my age, you know, that are looking forward to grandchildren or have grandchildren. And they say, you know, the world was really a much better place, safer place when we brought up our kids. The way we, you have to truly be concerned, it seems, um, so much more. We just didn't have that. I mean, crossing the street was a, was a big, you know, something yeah, that I we were that. teaching. But, you know, the fact that you had to worry about somebody may be grabbing someone, opening a car door and trying to pull a child in. Or I remember when your sister was going off to school and there was in the news this, you know, some pretty terrible things of things going on at nursery schools and abuse of children and how it broke my heart that at age five, I had to talk to your sister about mm. uh, not letting, you know, 
if anybody ever touches you where your bathing suit would normally go, you know, trying to put it in terms. I didn't think about that. That yeah. is a rite of passage for, for girls and their mother, just like with African-American family. They always consistently have told me they have the talk with their son in particular, but also their daughter, what to do if you're pulled over by the police. And I don't yeah. think Caucasian families have that discussion. Uh, there's another element in this exploring movement and play, which some of these to me are just universal truths. Uh, let them problem solve the Boston basics. Say if your toddler is concentrating on something, stand back and see what they can figure out by themselves. Mm -hmm. If they get stuck, give them just enough help or in my words, coaching so they can keep going and don't give up. I could be giving that advice, that coaching to a manager at work with adults. And I think in the workplace, people just bail each other out and people are not learning. Uh, there's not a pipeline of people that are growing and they're kind of stagnant because certain people are just the go-to to give them the answer. And here we're talking about toddlers, but I think this is just universal and applies to adults as well. Um, I'm in charge at my uh, place of employment uh, with some educational programs. And one of the things I've observed is these pro some of these programs are really encouraging children to learn by doing and we have to restrain the adults from giving the answers yeah that somehow as adults we think and i don't know how we got to this point but it's important to give the answers or perhaps it's important to our egos to be yeah. able to demonstrate we have the answers that's the hardest sure. thing yeah. let letting kids explore on their own and the nice thing is in your homes or in in, even in classrooms, those are really relatively safe places for kids to explore. And we shouldn't be looking at, oh, someone made a mistake, a child made a mistake. It's like a scientific experiment, trial and error. And these are safe places. And then where we should come in, I believe, is that we help them to understand that experience and maybe not repeat whatever the maybe the negative thing was or the thing that didn't work why didn't it work it's another opportunity to talk and to build a relationship with your child i'm sure it's a reflex that people have to repress it seems natural to mm -hmm. just naturally help or give the answer especially right. with a child i think it's true yeah. so our, our fifth principle here from the boston basics is read and i would underline this if i was writing it to someone read and discuss uh stories not just read but also to discuss them so never too early to start reading aloud. Uh, again, we talked about babies can hear pretty much mm -hmm. instantaneously. They may not know what the words are, the language is, but that's part of that repetition to understand it over time is to understand language. Uh, infants, uh, also the pointing that we saw in the mm -hmm. second point, talk, sing, and point. So while you're reading, point at pictures, speak with excitement. For toddlers, just make it fun, they say. Uh, this this underscores reading, which is a passion of both my mother and I. We both read a lot. So of course, I'm all for this. It underscores the importance of reading. So we read a lot, it sounds like. Did we discuss a lot at a certain point? There's, you know, reading is great and reading aloud to your child is wonderful. But I feel like if it's just one dimensional, that it's coming only from the adult and the child doesn't get an opportunity to respond, to say some of those words, to giggle, to, to ask questions sometimes. Um, you know, it's easy. And I remember too, like, Ken's going to ask why yet again, why, why, why? But you know what? That's wonderful when you think about it. The child is thinking yeah, and wants to have the why's never end. Right? The why's never <laughs> end, but that's 
great. And that's, yeah. and the discussion and that's learning to use words. But the other thing is it's building relationship, you know, that at a young age, you feel you can talk to me and we can talk back and forth. Doesn't that logic would say carry out as you get older to, you know, how, yeah. how do you expect to have any sort of trusted relationship without conversation? So yeah. I really, really think that that's very important. And again, you know, taking turns. Um, I have a nephew who wasn't, was struggling with some reading things. And we started reading books together over the phone. I, we'd get the same book out of the library. I'd read page one, he'd read page two. We'd talk about it and all this. And this went on for months. And in a relatively short period of time, his reading level jumped to grades. And now he likes to read. Even over the phone. Without Even the over the phone. And that's good for um, grandparents to keep in mind because this is a much more mobile society. So we won't always be able to be living in the same towns. You can do that. You can do it over FaceTime and Skype, you know, that whole sharing. Um, that's really wonderful. And I'm glad I had that experience because it's such a reminder to me, you know, really of how important that can be. How important when you were reading with me, did you find different sort of goofy voices are. Oh. <laughs> Even in popular music today, I think people gravitate towards unique voices. I like Bruce Springsteen's voice. Other people didn't. I like uh, Tom Petty. Uh, his voice was distinctive. Bob Dylan, it doesn't matter what he says. I can't understand what he's saying. I'll never <laughs> listen to that music. Neither. But for children, how maybe it's just initially to engage them. Um, I do feel like I remember saying, do that voice when someone was reading to me, yes. like the Big Bad Wolf or something like that. How important was the different voices, do you think, to engage early on or ongoing uh, in a child think, in reading? I think it was really important and fun. That's part of, the, again, the fun, the, the going back and forth. Your dad in particular was really good with some creating different voices. He and I had different ways of doing that. And it clearly, you responded to it. And then as you grew older and when you were reading the pages, you would do different voices. And I do that, have a long history of yeah, different voices. I know. So was that instinctual or is it because we did that at Modeling, an early, yeah. right, early age? Yeah. Um, so you have two lovers of, of reading here that are going to do nothing but talk about how great reading is. Uh, in every podcast, we always do some sort of reading from my library. So I thought it was appropriate that a book my mom gave me I would read from. Uh, and this is Tony Bennett just getting started with uh, Scott Simon, who's from uh, NPR radio uh, broadcast. There's no book that I could read where anyone's going to remember their life from zero or two. So this book, this little reading is just going to be part for perspective. So this is Tony Bennett and his book. He's saying, I was 10 years old. My father had just died. He loved art and music, Gandhi and Paul Robeson. He was strong and sensitive in the center of my world. His brother, my uncle Dominic, came to my mother after the funeral and said it would be tough for a 36-year-old working single mother and widow with three kids. So off I went, 10 years old with a suitcase, leaving my family in Queens behind. I gladly helped out with the farm chores. He was sent to upstate New York, kind of pretty close to the border of Canada uh, by the St. Lawrence River. So it was a, a world of difference between New York City and where he went. So he helped out with the farm chores, but Uncle Dominic was upset to come home one day and find me singing in the kitchen to Aunt Dominica as she ironed. He must have had a hard day in the fields. He saw me singing to my aunt and just kicked the chair out from under me and screamed, why don't you do some work around here? Why don't you milk a cow or something? Singing gave me joy. Tony Bennett says, it reminded me of my father. Getting my chair kicked out from under me by my uncle Dominic made me miserable all over again and made me wonder, 
what was I doing with them in this place called Paritis? I live in New York State. I don't even know the town. Do you know? No, neither of us do. I tried to spend most of my time with my cousins who live next door, especially my favorite cousin. I was there an entire school year, and then my mother brought me back home, home to Astoria, Queens. I can feel the relief even in the book as I read it. Nine months seemed like a century to a 10-year-old. I see now that it must have seemed even longer to my mother, losing her husband than missing a son. It's been a hard story to explain over the years, but lots of families had to do hard things to get by during the Depression. My uncle offered to take in the young son of his brother's widow to try to relieve her of some of the pressures of raising three children alone. My mother might have thought it would give a young child who had lost his father a fresh start under the blue skies. And this is the important part to me. What we soon realized was that we really needed to hold on to each other. Uh, And then he appreciates um, his time there, despite all that, uh, because it introduced him to nature and he fell in love with the river in the winter, the beautiful and serene St. Lawrence River. So for me, that perspective illustrates how much kids need their parents at all ages how he still hung on to his interactions with his father, maybe in those formative years of zero through three. And, you know, how a lot of his traits were already there. He was singing to his aunt and uh, the uncle, who at least in that moment uh, resembled everything that is not the Boston basics and how to interact with a child in terms of discouraging their exploration, their creativity, uh, in terms of saying to milk a a cow or something like that. So that's the perspective I wanted to bring, and I thought it underscored some of the importance of the early years of one's childhood. Well, I'm a big fan, and you watched it, so um, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Oh, yeah. And very simple program, um, but very, very profound. And Did you realize that as a parent when we were watching it? Because as kids, we didn't, and I don't even know why we liked it so much. It's such a goofy show. But it had such learning in it, as now I've watched a documentary recently. There's a movie that's going to come out with Tom Hanks, a second documentary. But did you know it as a parent that we were getting some learning, that there was teaching going on? Was it obvious to parents? It was obvious to me, I think, the way it was certainly being promoted. And first of all, it was on PBS, so which... You know, our local PBS station was nicknamed the Education Channel. So, you know, that would be the go-to television channel for children. And it was right on during dinner preparation time. I remember that. Mm -hmm. And I felt like it was safe. And I would come in and out of the room. So it's not like I plopped you in front of that television for a half hour and didn't interact. There was singing in there. And it was all about, you know, I like you the way you are and addressed some questions, you know, of the real world. Um, And I think it was a fantastic show. And you're right, it was kind of corny, it wasn't real flashy. And but I think it touched where some of the animated programs do not. So let's answer directly before we close the questions that I posed in the beginning. And we'll we'll go in reverse order. Are the Boston basics valuable or just well-intended and low-impact generalities? And talking about it with you, I I think there's a lot of value to it. I think they're valuable as reminders of the importance, certainly, now that we have the information to, which we didn't have when you were growing up. I didn't have all these statistics of 80% of brain growth is done between ages zero and the position you would put a baby when they're sleeping is different than what it is today. Yep, there are It's like the nutrition food pyramid to me. I I don't put a lot of faith in it. No, well, now it's a food plate. So those of us who grew up with a pyramid, now it's a plate. And it's still garbage, so I'll call it a garbage plate. (laughs) There are different opinions for sure on that. 
but I, here's what my concern is, is that if we are going to the Harvard University group and Ron Ferguson, if you're trying to address that achievement gap and you brought up about how parents sometimes are just struggling to survive, multiple jobs might be a single parent home, there all could be all sorts of stressors and challenges. How do we educate parents in those kinds of situations that how do we reach parents um in i'm gonna a way go with the word them? support support to explain the achievement gap that exists and to address these parents i feel almost irresponsible if we try to talk about it and answer it in the next five minutes but education and support these parents need support i don't even know if they could pull off some of the things in the boston basics without support just for practical reasons right. and what are the what forms do, does that support take? And I don't think we have all the answers, but that, I think those are really, really important questions. So from having raised two kids, mm -hmm. me being one of them, what do you think babies really need early in life? Oh, I think there's no question. Love and interaction. It's not just a few kisses and laying them down in the crib and go to bed, but really being involved and engaged. Can you love them so much that they end up not being prepared for the big bad world? Yes, we have the term helicopter parents today, mm. and I think there's some validity to that term. And that's what I was talking about earlier, that sometimes you have to give children some space. We as adults like space, children should have some space too. And I think that there's also been an over-concern on esteem, which could be a whole nother conversation, mm -hmm. but that everyone, you know, if you have a competition, everybody has to win some award or some ribbon. Well, in life, on the job, whatever, there are high achievers and middle achievers and low achievers, and there's winners and losers. And I feel like today, one of the things I worry about and I think about in terms of grandchildren and such, that you want to empower them with the confidence based on the love as parents and caring individuals so that they can go out and face those challenges when they're alone. So yet again, the answer is love. Yeah. You've been listening to the Between the Ears podcast. Have a future topic idea or just want to interact with us? Tweet us at between underscore cast. And I challenge our listeners to have this exact conversation with your mother.